Right. Um, welcome, everybody, to our Truth Seminar. I'm delighted to welcome you all. I'm, I'm Yasmin Khan, and I'm a lecturer in history in the Department for Continuing Education here. And um, it's, it's wonderful to get together people from such diverse um, intellectual and academic backgrounds and to talk about a subject like truth, um, because it really does stand at the crux, I think, of so much of what we're all doing. I know in my own subject, there's a whole range of opinions about how close to the truth we can ever get as historians, ranging from people who think um, what we see in archives represents exactly what happened in the past, to those um, postmodernists who more recently, like Hayden White, have been arguing that anything historical written down is a text and therefore more like a piece of, of fiction writing and doesn't bear any reality to anything that ever happened. So um, truth is a, is a very controversial subject and it's a very obviously a, um, you know, the perhaps the most important subject in terms of um, research. So uh, it's, it's going to be really interesting to have together people from different backgrounds and different disciplines. I should say before we get started this is being filmed and so if, um, if you wouldn't like to appear on film um, and would rather not be videoed, um, Liz suggested that you, s you sit on that side of the room. So, um, just a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, we we are we do have a sort of very tight program and a packed program, so um, we will be having to limit the questions to sort of short uh, short five minute bursts after every session. Um, but there is an opportunity, obviously, afterwards over drinks to to, to kind of continue the conversation. And that's very much what we hope will happen. So um, forgive me if I. Um, you sort of break up the party, if you like, and stop you um, when you're in mid-flow, but we, we do have to sort of keep to time for our, for our speakers' sake. Um, and I'm delighted today that we've got four people um, who all bring real expertise in very diverse areas um, to talk to us. And the first of these is Anne Jensen, um, who's from the Department of Primary Healthcare and the Department for Continuing Education, and is also a qualified chiropractor and a qualified psychologist. Um, so, Anne, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for coming out on Valentine's Day. It's a bit, I, I, had, I was trying to drag people here, but um, I couldn't get anyone to come. So, well, thank you for coming along. Um, truth is, I'm a qualified chiropractor. I've been doing muscle testing and practice for 12, 13, 14 years now. Anyone here know what kinesiology is, muscle testing? No. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, <laughs> that's fine. I will tell you. Um, and what is it? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a diagnostic test that allows the practitioner to detect things about the patient that they normally wouldn't be able to do consciously. Tell, um, and you'd be surprised. Well, it's, it's called a lot of different things. Um, muscle testing, muscle response testing, or kinesiology is quite popular here in the UK. Um, I decided to call it something more specific, kinesiology, kinesiology style manual muscle testing, because there's many different kinds of practitioners out there that 
push on muscles, push on joints to elicit certain responses, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that looks something similar to that. That's what my research was on. And um, I'm going to call it kinesiology or KMMT. And you'd be surprised that over a million people around the world use this. Um, I was surprised at that. And it's used in over 70 different technique systems. And what is it used for? Well, you probably would be surprised also that it's used for pretty much to detect anything. And that's, that was the, one of the biggest problems. By the way, I didn't start out doing my DPhil through the um, department uh, on muscle testing. I wanted to do an intervention that used muscle testing, but they said, hang on, I don't remember that car. <laughs> They're like, what's this all about? And I said, all right, well, back up. You've got to do this first before you do that. So that is why we decided to do muscle testing. And when you, when you do diagnostic test accuracy, study, accuracy studies, you have to choose target conditions that are detectable and it's certainly very concrete because we're starting with a, a test that's a little bit fuzzy to begin with. So I chose uh, lie detection. People detect lies through the muscle test. And my primary aim of my research was to determine if muscle testing can be used to accurately distinguish truth from lies or lies from truth. And we followed all the protocols of the, uh, the STARD protocol and uh, had a lot of input into these studies. Now, to assess accuracy of a test, um, there's a thing called precision and accuracy. I chose accuracy. And accuracy, what you do is you have the, your index test, which is a test you're questioning how accurate it is, and you compare it to a reference standard. And the reference standard is, well, okay, is the condition present or absent? And you compare it with, with what the index test determined. And that, that amount of variance is the accuracy. And as you can imagine, if, okay, in my, in my studies, the muscle testing was the index test, the actual truth was the reference standard. In this case, it was actually a gold standard because we knew whether or not something was true or not true. But if the actual truth varied, that would be a problem for me. So I wanted a a gold standard, because I knew I was going to have trouble with this in the concept of this research in the wider world, especially in my department, which is the case. But um, we've decided to use actual truth, which is what I've been thinking about for the last seven years. What is truth? So what did I do? I did a series of six diagnostic test accuracy studies. I did a main study with 48 practitioner testee pairs. I re replicated it, um, and then I did a few more just to make sure. Um, I had pretty much consistent components to the, to the, all the studies had very similar components. I always used some kind of muscle testing as the index test. The reference standard was always the actual truth. We also uh, added a secondary index test, which was guessing. Um, and the reason we included that was um, 
a lot of people would say, wait a minute, that muscle testing, that really doesn't work. You're just really good at picking it up, picking that. You're good at reading people. So by taking the muscle testing out and putting in the guessing, um, it, uh, it kind of tweezed that part out of it. And it also gave the people, the, the participants, a chance to rest in between the muscle tests because we had them do 60 or 80 muscle tests in one sitting. Um, we use the same study population recruit. Everything was pretty much the same, just diff slightly different aspects. I'll show you what it looked like primarily. This was two, two, um, this one is the test patient, that's the muscle tester. She's seeing a picture, she has an earpiece in. She's told what to say in relation to the picture. The muscle tester tests. Now the paradigm that we use was if the person was speaking a truth, the arm stayed strong. That's the paradigm that's used out in the real world. That's the one we used in my research. And if you see, that wasn't a piano, the muscle went weak. If, the mu if she wasn't speaking a truth, the muscle went weak. If, the, if she was speaking the truth, the muscle stayed strong. And that went on and on and on. There are a couple other aspects of it. They couldn't see each other's computer. Sometimes the computers were behind. Sometimes they were in front. Whatever worked for the pair. And also, the tester could do whatever she liked in practice. Whatever she does, she does. Seated, standing, but she had to use the same muscle, one of the two deltoids. And um, other than that, and hold the wrist um, rather than the elbow. But other than that, it was pretty much the same throughout. Okay, that's the testing scene layout, um, pretty much what I just explained. So the test patient, it's actually reversed here. The test patient saw a picture. She was told what to say in relation to the picture. Sometimes the practitioner saw the same picture. Sometimes the practitioner saw a completely blank screen. In the case it was a blank screen, that's they were blind. And those are the ones we use as our primary outcome with a blind, test, blind practitioner. Okay, so how did we go? So, uh, just quickly, we had 48 people in the study. Overall fraction correct, which is what we called accuracy, was 65.9% correct. Guessing turned out to be 48.1%. Does anyone, did that surprise anyone? Surprised us, actually. It turned out to be a significant difference, as you would imagine. We also compared muscle testing accuracy to chance, which is 50-50, and we found it to be significant difference as well. Um, this was a scatter plot between guessing accuracy and muscle testing accuracy. You can see there's no pattern, which means that the people that were really good at guessing were, didn't necessarily were good at muscle testing and vice versa. So there's no correlation there. Um, we also looked at what factors might influence muscle testing. Um, and we found that looking at age, years in practice, years practicing muscle <coughs> testing, and how many hours a day on average they use muscle testing. And you can see the p-values here are quite, they, there was no correlation. I, I witnessed that when I was, muscle, uh, when I was collecting these, this data. I mean, I had a practitioner 30 years in practice, and he was getting 35% correct practitioner just took the seminar last week, the week before, she got 85% correct. I mean, I saw that constantly. So 
through this research, I haven't identified anything that told me, okay, that influences how well a person muscle tests. And I tested a lot more things than that, but that was just some of the major things. Then, because the study was so like, what? You, my, my supervisors were like, you real, that really happened? I don't believe it. Let's do it again. So we did it again. But this time, we did another sample size calculation. We got um, 20 pairs was sufficient. We also, 48, putting 48 people, pairs, through the primary study, I learned different things. We streamlined it. We only did 40 muscle tests. So it was basically the same study, just streamlined and tighter and neater. Um, and we got very similar results. 69% correct versus guessing was 49% correct, very similar. And, and again, compared to the guessing and chance, a very significant difference between the two. Hmm. One thing I'd like to point out is the, sh the range of uh, muscle testing, 45 to 92% correct. That's quite a big range. How come some people are getting 45% correct and other people are getting 92% correct? I don't know. Okay, then I said, well, if muscle testing, if muscle strength changes after speaking lies, well, what if we take the practitioner out, let's see if we just do grip strength and see if we get any change. So we basically the same sort of thing, the, the test patient, in this case there was only one person involved, was told to speak a truth or a lie in relation to a picture they saw, they squeezed a grip strength dynamometer immediately after speaking the, the statement, and I recorded the kilograms of strength. Um, and we found that false statements, the difference between mean grip strength and kilograms between false and true statements were pretty much identical. And even if you looked at dominant hand versus non-dominant hand, they were no difference between false and true statements which tells us that, hey, practitioner somehow is involved in this dynamic. That's what we know. Or that grip strength isn't sensitive enough, but we know that that's not the case, actually, because different things. But anyway, then I said, well, okay, so if a practitioner could, it was really good at one patient. Was he consistently good at testing all other patients? So we did a reproducibility study. And this is just a graphical e example. What we did, we had each dot is a practitioner, and down here we have the test patients. So we had six, six test patients, 16 practitioners rotated around the six test patients. Um, the green line is uh, chance, is 50%. And the blue line connects the means for the, each test patient. And we can see it. It's, it's, except for test patient five over there, I don't know what happened to her, but consistently better than chance and um, I'm fairly com comfortable with the width of the, um, the width of the um, confidence intervals here. So we, we can say that, oh yeah, according to practitioners, they're fairly fairly consistent, it's fairly reproducible. Okay, and then, so we, bl we blinded the test patients, uh, the practitioners. Now, let's 
blind the test patients. So same thing, same protocols, same situation, except the test patient saw the picture for only a very short amount of time, 0.2 seconds, which wasn't enough to reach a conscious um, consciousness, conscious awareness. Um, hello. Oh, sorry, I pushed the wrong button. Um, so this is what a test patient would have seen. I don't know if this will work. Is it connected to the internet? Anyway, it's not. It's not really that important. But, but um, it just basically flashed, flashed up. You couldn't see it. Um, and what did we get here? We got muscle testing was 48.5 percent correct. Guessing 47.8 percent correct, which did not reach significance, even chance. According, no difference which made us really kind of go, hmm, what's going on here? So that made me, this, this study, looking at the results of this study made me really wonder what truth was. Um, so possible explanations of the results of the truth, the subliminal study, the most likely scenario was I just didn't do the subliminal part right, and I found that actually there's a, quite a lot involved with subliminal presentation of pictures, everything from distance to eye to screen and size and anyway, that is, this is probably the most likely scenario. But also, it's possible that the subliminal, it was so subliminal, it didn't, subliminal wasn't probably, might not be the right avenue because it might not have reached long-term memory. <coughs> also, a, a possible explanation might be that truth or lies depends on conscious perception. If you do not know whether or not you're telling the truth or lying, you might not make the muscle testing accurate. Um, there was another study done on muscle testing and pregnant moms, and they found that 50% correct as well. I think there was about 38. What is this person? Is this mom having a boy? Is this mom having a girl? It was chance. So if the mother didn't, this was pre-ultrasound, by the way, pre-ultrasound, and they found that they didn't have um, any accuracy t to that muscle test either. So, or it might be something else entirely that we haven't thought of. So remember, do you remember my research was a term of muscle testing can be used to accurately distinguish lies from truth. Consistently, muscle testing has been shown to be better than chance at detecting lies or truth, depending on how you look at it. But what is truth then? I've been working with truth for past seven years in these, in these studies and in practice on a daily basis. I see people speak truth, what they say is truth, where I know, somehow know that it's not true, what they're saying. The muscle test tells me that what they're saying isn't actually true. So, um, and don't, and don't forget that I needed to have a concrete truth to make these muscle testing studies valid. So um, I put this to you. What is truth? Is it universal or personal? Is there one truth or does everyone in here have their own truth? Is truth 
unchanging or is it transient? If it, and if it is transient, how 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 quick does it change? And is it conscious or not conscious? In my experience, it's a very personal thing. My truth is different to everyone else's truth, and it's, I'm very emotionally attached to my truth. It is transient. What I believe today is to be true may not be the same thing in 10 minutes' time. And it's conscious, but it's also non-conscious, and they might not be the same. What you believe consciously is true may not be completely different on a non-conscious level. I don't like to use subconscious or unconscious, I just say non-conscious. And uh, I'd like to thank my, the people that have helped me through these studies. It's been a challenge, but thank you very much for asking me to talk today. Thank you very much, and, and particularly for those questions which um, sort of set us up now, I suppose, for, for questions for you. I don't know if people are going to answer those <laughs> questions or, or pose new ones to you, but it's, um, uh, I'm opening it up to, to anybody who'd like to ask Anne a question about her research. I, I Would you yeah, mind using it's just for the recording. So okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks very much for your talk. I just at the end, there's a, I guess um, when you're doing a DPhil, you're focusing on your discipline, and there's um, there's quite a, a lot being written in anthropology and history about meanings of truth. And uh, um, there's a classic example of, of Clifford Geertz, an anthropologist, who walks by and uh, he says, "You see someone winking at you, winking at you." And that wink can mean many things and many many truths. Whether they're sort of you know, is it, is it a come on? Is it you know, is it sort of some sort of uh, um, conspiracy act, etc. But that that truth is often unknowable as well. Absolutely. Um, and so, as as you could say, as a researcher, you're just making the, the best of many guesses. And in, in in the clinical research world, the clinical research, we don't. I'm taught and I'm told all constantly by my supervisors, don't speculate. You know, don't. That's your job. As what in your his in it, what are you philosophy, or anthropology? Yeah. Whatever, yeah, um, yeah, we're told not to speculate. You know, that's too speculative. How many times have I seen that on papers? Too speculative. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, I see it in practice all the time as well. Um, like, I pick up on stuff that people are, that people are I, I feel stuff that other people feel. I feel emotions that other people feel. I don't know why they're feeling it, but, I, you know, I can just say, well, you know, you know anyway. But yeah, I totally agree with that. Can I ask one question of all of you? Um, by looking at this research, this is um, my life's work for the last seven years, did it make you go, well, maybe there's something to vessel testing, or is, is this still a bunch of hogwash, is what I was told the first talk I gave. It's a bunch of hogwash. That's what I was told the first time. Now, this is seven years later. My, my question is, I'm not the CIA or, or Secret <laughs> Services and knocking your door. So. That's what I, I, don't, I don't want that. I'm, I'm not, that's not my yeah, thing. Yeah. I don't want to be involved in that kind of yeah. people. So. Would you like to? Yeah, I, I think we could get in a very deep conversation if we were going to thoroughly examine truth. But could, could I be very boring if I may just for one moment and go back to your participant base? Sure. Because that could be very interesting, evidentially. Um, 
there is no doubt that some professional groups, we could think of people who make dissembling a living. Um, Dis dissembling? Dissembling. Don't yeah. know what that means. Lying, lying. Oh, lying for a living. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, not always lying. Okay, yes, okay. Got um, it. It's, a, it's a, a vague word I'm using deliberately. Anyway, that's beside the point. Yes. The professional groups, um, how did you recruit for this? The, uh, yes. A couple of points. Yeah. Did the practitioners know the patients? Because doing this sort of test is actually, in a sense, strictly non-medical. This is not a GP patient or clinical. There was a few GPs thrown in. Yeah, well, that, that's fine. But in that case, I'd just be very interested to know that. Okay. Yeah. There, um, that's a great question. And the first study I did, 48 pairs, practitioners were recruited from the anyone that used muscle testing in practice was was invited to participate and I put emails out there I put n notices out there at seminars and um, the 70 different technique systems some of them sent messages to contact me so yeah they were um, anyone any practitioner that used it in practice so very no, they did not. Really strict patients. In the first in the first study, forty eight practitioners, no, they did not know each other. After that we included some that knew each other, some that didn't. And the, also the test patients that we recruited in the first study were naive to muscle testing. They did not know what was going to happen. They had no experience in muscle testing. The follow up studies they some had experience, some didn't. Some knew their practitioner, some didn't. We found it in the follow up studies that it didn't matter. This, the, the, there's no difference between the two different groups if you stratify them. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Okay. So now we move on to architectural history and Rosemary Yallop, who's a fourth year part time. DPhil student here in architectural history is going to be talking to us about an Englishman's home is his castle, truth in architecture. But I think I'm right in saying you, you work in Byzantine it no, Italy no, as well. Italianate, Italianate um, Very as well. So, great. Thank you. Okay, well, um, from the scientific to the aesthetic, um, and there won't be graphs, I'm afraid, but there will be um, some nice pictures. So what has truth got to do with architecture, which one would have thought is a subject which is objective, functional, and so to speak, concrete? Well, architecture is functional, but whether intentionally or not, Every building is also an expression of something, um, an expression of a belief, of an identity, of an aspiration. So architecture is really neutral in terms of the impact which it has on spectators. But can we go further than that? Can we say that um, buildings can enshrine moral values? And how exactly can buildings deceive? 
Well, I'm going to look at a style of architecture which encapsulated this question, the domestic or sham castle in England in the first half of the 19th century. Now, this was a period of upheaval in architectural theory. Um, towards the end of the 18th century, um, there was a new school of thought which had emerged, which rejected the very strict rules of neoclassical design in favor of a much more free-flowing and expressionist approach. And in tandem with this, wanted to produce buildings that responded uh, to the landscape, to their setting. Uh, and this new aesthetic was called the picturesque. Um, and its protagonists were very strongly influenced, I'm probably not totally clear, um, by the sort of rustic buildings that you would see in the background of the 17th century landscape painters. Um, like Claude Lorraine, Salvatore Rosa, uh, Poussin, where these buildings are very irregular, they're asymmetrical, and they look as if they've sort of grown um, randomly, and organically might be the modern word, into their landscape. But they still form this really pleasing sort of grouping. Um, so, like most um, rebellions, it was perfectly clear what the picturesques wanted to reject. It was slightly less clear. Um, what they wanted to do in place of this strict, um, rule-driven design of neoclassicism. Um, so what style should they embrace instead? Well, the field was wide open, as this pattern book of the day suggests. Um, but this apparently very indiscriminate eclecticism did actually have a common thread, believe it or not. Um, the idea was the building should evoke a response in people, whether from the gut or from the head. Uh, and you evoked your response um, by association of ideas, by alluding to a different period of history or a different geographical location. So you can have uh, Gothic, or Tudor Beethoven, um, you can play it being Marion Antoinette at the Cottage, you can have Old English, Italian Age, and in the middle a sort of vaguely defined Eastern, Hindu, they didn't really know what to call it. Um, but this is architecture as um, picture painting, <coughs> scene setting. It's architecture as theatre. And theatre is, of course, um, a form of perception, that willing suspension of disbelief on the part of the audience. And few architectural templates um, offered greater theatrical potential than the domestic castle, the medieval castle. So let us look at some of the examples which followed. Now, John Nash, who was either the, the brightest star of Regency architecture or its enfant terrible, depending on your point of view, um, was very quick to see the possibilities of um, the castle genre as a picturesque form. And in his very, very career, he built 12 castles, uh, one of which is in the middle there, was his own home on the Isle of Wight, East Cowes. Um, but here are two more of his very early examples. Um, the one at the top, Luscombe, built near the Devon coast, Dawlish, or Dawlish, which has now hit the national consciousness, um, which is one of his earliest, 1799, and it's almost one of his most refined and most subtle. Down at the bottom, a house called Killy Moon in the wilds of County Derome in, in, in bandit country in Ireland. Um, slightly different in character, it's got a slightly more fortified skin, um, but those big elegant windows rather sort of give the game away. It's a house, it's not a castle. 
Their interiors aren't castle-like at all. They're, they're classical. They're not heraldic pastiche. In fact, Nash had a correspondence with the, the wife of the client of Killy Moon about how to hang the curtains and where to put the curtain rails. Um, he chose this form because he liked that variety of outline, and he felt it was the only response to these actually beautifully wooded landscapes. So for Nash, these were not pseudo-historical statements. These were exercises in, in the picturesque. These are charming houses. They're not forbidding fortresses. But um, for Nash's followers in the architectural profession, um, their motives were slightly less pure, slightly less aesthetic, because you had a new breed of wealthy, often self-made men. Uh, and there was undoubtedly an element of snobbery in choosing a castle for the design of their country seats. Because the novelty of landingship on a big scale, which a lot of these self-made men uh, generated, brought to them a sort of sense of history. And at the same time, in the wider um, early Victorian England, um, there was a, a great interest in uh, historicism, in looking back at the medieval world, a very sentimentalized view of the medieval world and its trappings. Um, and the, the reinvention of chivalry, um, this mythical idea encouraged by the novels of, of Walter Scott. So historicism was in the air, and it's not surprising that um, <coughs> there was a movement away by some architects from this idea of the picturesque to um, the stress on historical accuracy. And we've got two, I think, quite striking examples of this, um, of that more historical, less picturesque form. Um, these are a lot less friendly. They're more forbidding. If you were going to go and visit those, you would be... You'd take a step back, I think. At the bottom, forgive me if I can't pronounce it, but Greek. Any Welshman women would like to, thank you, like to correct me? Um, near Abigeli, um, built by the son of an heiress. He was a bit of an amateur architect. Ironically, it is now itself a picturesque ruin of the sort which, at the time, people wanted to build. Um, Penryn, at the top, was built by a Cornish slate magnate who'd made his money out of slate and celebrated it by building this massive pile of stone. Um, a follower of Nash, Robert Lugar, whose pattern book we saw earlier, um, had already reintroduced the castle to Scotland in the very beginning of the uh, 19th century. And of course, the Scots now weren't building castles to keep the English out. They were using them to invite the English in to have nice long weekends and shooting parties. Um, Lugar was also very active in Wales. Um, and there are two of his examples which I, I want to look at, which really illustrate, I think, the castle as a social pinnacle. Um, one at the bottom, Meislach, um, which is in the Y Valley. I show the old postcard because it's been partly demolished, but it's still in use as a house. Um, his client here, they were provincial solicitors and bankers, clearly on the up, because not content with building this grand new house. Um, as soon as they finished it, uh, with a, a touch of Hardy and Tess of the Delvilles, they changed their name from Wilkins to the rather more medieval De Winton. <laughs> Now, Lugar's other work is Kafatha. Um, it is his sort of 
masterwork as, as a castle. It's monumental. It was built in 1824 for the Crochet family, who were iron founders um, in Merthyr Tydfil um, in South Wales. Um, this, I think, in many ways typified the idea of the modern castle um, as a symbol of new prosperity. Um, 72 rooms, 365 windows, carpet ordered in quantities of a quarter of a mile. It was a way of advertising their wealth. But the curious thing is that they didn't make any attempt to hide the source of their wealth and their success because it's sited up on a hill and just out of sight, out of view, is the iron foundry across the river town. In the garden was an ornamental lake that was used as a reservoir for the foundry. And the architect himself described the view from the castle terrace with approval. The great ironworks at night offer a truly magnificent scene, resembling the fabled pandemonium, but upon which the eye may gaze with pleasure and the mind derive high satisfaction, knowing that several thousand people are there constantly employed and fed by the active spirit, perfect enterprise, and noble feeling of the highly respected owner. What a crawler. But, before we get too snobbish, um, we should be clear, this was not a style confined to the New Irish. Many of the aristocratic castles, which we perhaps now regard as kind of historical totems, um, such as um, the Duke of Norfolk's Arundel, uh, the Duke of Rutland's Beaver, Duke of Northumberland's Annick, um, owe their current form to early 19th century reconstruction and alteration. Chumley Castle, the top there, is completely new, built by the Marquis of Chumley in Cheshire um, from eight, in stages from 1801. Um, and then, of course, right at the top of the social pyramid, we have a real castle inhabited by the finest of buildings, <coughs> uh, Windsor Castle, defensive structure, built originally as such, inhabited since Norman times. So we can breathe sigh of relief and luxuriate in the authenticity well, actually, no, we can't, because um, what we see here is a result of alterations under George IV in the 1830s. Um, the castle skyline wasn't thought to be imposing or dramatic enough. And um, I'm sorry to tell you that among other alterations, the famous Ran Tower was doubled in height. 30 metres was added to the top, purely for decorative picturesque reasons, to make it look... Uh, more picturesque. Um, it was quite literally a hollow sham. Um, and in another touch of the Durbervilles, the architect who got a knighthood for his efforts changed his name from Wyatt to Sir Geoffrey Wyattville. Um, but in the middle of the 19th century, a backlash began. Um, and there was a new feeling developing for the embedded values of genuinely historic buildings. And the greatest charge levelled by the new Victorians against the flippancy of Regency architecture was deception. Um, even its materials were derided. Um, stucco, which is always associated with Nash, um, and which in fact he used to plan one of his castles, uh, was imitation stone. So it was a work of the devil. Um, and the self-appointed grand inquisitor for morality and architecture, Augustus Pugin, loathed picturesque for what he said was um, 
fairy tale pretense, um, absolutely no historical authenticity. And he thought that was what the picture has promoted, and he declared it um, immoral, <coughs> anti-historical, uh, un-British, and most tellingly of all, and powerfully, un-Christian. And both Pugin and later Ruskin crusaded for architecture to be true to purpose, true to materials. Architecture, they believe, carried a very grave moral responsibility, and above all, buildings should be what they see. And castellated houses, in particular, drew Puget's fire, and in this polemic, which he published in 1841, he, he draws this very silly castle with a conservatory and um, smoking chimneys and the turrets, and says, what can be more absurd? Or is a mere mask, and the whole building is an ill-conceived lie. Um, and he criticised what, in his view, anticipating modernism, was the cardinal sin of divorcing form from function. And he said, what anomalies, what utter contradictions do not the builders of modern castles perpetrate? On one side of the house, machicolated parapets and bastions, and round the corner, a conservatory. What invader would hammer against the castle's nail portals when he could kick his way in through a greenhouse? But some architects were <coughs> respectful of antiquity. One of the more rigorous was somebody called Anthony Salvin, who had restored genuine old castles at Norwich and at Carnarvon, but as a former pupil of Nash, had still retained an eye for picturesque effect and the need to connect the landscape. Now, his masterwork is a castle <coughs> called Peckfortin, uh, built as a completely new house in Cheshire, um, in the 1840s for the first Lord Tolmash on his 26,000-acre estate, rather cheekily overlooking and completely over-trumping a genuine castle. This is Peckfortin in the foreground, and that's Beeston Castle in the background. And so authentic was Peckfortin that the kitchen was built 60 yards away from the dining room. Um, but apart from its scale, the really interesting thing about Peckfortin is that it may have had a genuinely defensive purpose. In the 1830s and 1840s, there had been unrest <coughs> in the industrial cities of Britain, riots over uh, poverty, over the extension of the right to vote. Um, work on Peckforton Castle began in 1844, a year when 30 miles away in Manchester, one Friedrich Engels was studying the condition of the working classes and prophesying the decisive battle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie is approaching. The Tolmash was hardly bourgeois, but um, as a feudalist <coughs> landowner, he had an awful lot to lose in social unrest. But if the need arose, once the portcullis at Peckforton, which works, is lowered, he could hold out with everything he needed inside the curtain wall. And the architect George Gilbert Scott later described Peckforton as the very height of masquerading. But given its defensibility, perhaps it wasn't a sham castle after all, but a real one. Gilbert Scott added in 1857, the monstrous practice of castle building is unhappily not yet extinct. Um, and indeed, it staggered on into the next century in the form of Castle Drogon, built in Devon, high up on an escarpment by Sir Edwin Lutyens, for Julius Drew, who was um, a grocery magnate who had very fortunately rediscovered some medieval ancestry. Um, building here started in 
1911, and it um, dragged on for another 19 years, uh, massively over-ambitious, only ever completed at a third of its original proposed size. I think Jerigo perhaps represents um, the end of a dream of Merry England, which had finally perished in the Great War, and it is England's last new castle. Um, this has been a very compressed account, and I galloped through it, for which I apologise. But why do these buildings matter? Um, what, if anything, do they hold for us today? Is it anything more than a sort of Victorian morality tale about snobbery and, and extravagance and conspicuousness? <coughs> well, quite aside from their physical legacy, that these extraordinary buildings dot the countryside, um, I think they matter for two reasons. First, their story is a facet of that passionate high Victorian debate about morality and architecture, about the search for a national style. Um, and that still resounds today. Secondly, and perhaps less directly, I think they matter because they're challenges to train our eye. And what I mean by that is that successive waves of architecture have always borrowed or stolen from the past. And we all are happy to use words like Neo-Georgian, um, Queen Anne Revival, Mock Tudor. But it's the degree and the quality of the homage to the past which is important to understand, to recognize there is a spectrum running from influence. This was influenced by this period. Uh, synthesis, synthesis of styles on the one hand, right through to derivative to pastiche, finishing up with plain old fake. Because still, today, we seek the reassurance, in architectural terms, um, the reassurance of, of the old, of, of the tried and tested. And we imitate, or we borrow, what to us seem to be important features. And sometimes, by misunderstanding, or by not reading it truly, we get it wrong. So perhaps authenticity is a better word to use in this context of architecture than truth. Authenticity requires us to understand the essence of a style and to remain true to it through derivation and not through slavish imitation. And authenticity, I would suggest, should be the paramount principle in our approaches both to design and to conservation. And I think that's why, for the sake of our built environment, the example of these buildings matters a great deal. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rosemary, um, for beautifully uh, illustrating how what we see um, isn't always um, isn't always what we think we see. And we've got a couple of minutes for questions for Rosemary. Anybody? Um, like to pose them to Rosemary? I mean, I, I suppose I'd ask you um, whether castles are the epitome of that, um, of, of that uh, kind of um, aspiration towards something old in British architecture, or is, is, are there other styles that have, have done that to such an extent, or are castles really the... The, the most kind of well, extreme the, version, I, I think suppose. they were a very visible and very easy thing 
to identify with. Um, it, it's been a very compressed account, I'm afraid, because, of course, Fusion and Ruskin, their idea of truth in architecture was you had to go further back. You had to go to the medieval period. And that really was truth, and that was godly, and that was, you, you couldn't argue with it because it was architecture that came from God. So high Victorian architecture, the truly, the height of Gothic revival, um, became, and then it's bastardized forms, particularly around North Oxford, um, that became, I think, the, uh, the true <laughs> identification. There's much more scope to build Gothic in the suburbs than there is Auckland, with exceptions, uh, than castles. And so the whole fusion debate, which I can't possibly touch on now, um, was about going back, not just to the fundamentals of the style, but to how people lived. Um, it, it caused the most enormous debate, which was surprisingly democratic. The popular newspapers engaged in it, perhaps to much more of an extent than we engage in architectural debate uh, today. Mm. David. Yeah, thanks very much. That's really interesting. I was just interested about the individual, I guess, agency of the architect, because you have all the modernist traditionalist debates, and now you have, I guess, quite active uh, groups, such as new urbanists, who are, you know, or um, you know, various um, interest groups who are actively almost political groups. And I wondered, at that same time, say in the 18, early 1800s, um, you'd also have sort of stately homes being built in different styles. And I just wondered, at that time, was it down to the individual agency of the architect? And Nash would go his way and you know, others would go their way. Or was there a sort of a collective group? I mean, you talked about the debate in the newspapers. Mm. Um, and I, but I just wondered, was there sort of well, cohorts sad, going sad around? Say, well, perhaps it's not sad, exciting, that they were a really promiscuous bunch. I mean, Nash not only did castles, he did Italianate, he did the sort of neoclassical Regent's Park, he did the Brighton Pavilion. Luke, Robert Lugar did castles. If it's Tuesday, it must be Italianate. If it's Thursday, I'll try a bit of cottage ornay. Um, and it was, I think, a symptom of some confusion. It, they, they knew they wanted to get away from the strict um, Palladian neoclassicism. But also, you had a new market. Um, the burgeoning middle classes wanted something that perhaps showed that they too had seen these Italian paintings. I think a lot of it was to do with um, the appetite of particularly the suburban middle classes for portraying something about themselves. Suddenly they had access to something to express, uh, a vehicle to express their own aspirations, their own lives. So they loved these, this whole variety of eclectic styles. Some architects stuck to their guns and just wouldn't do anything else. So some were purely <coughs> some were purely classical. And some saw a route, and of course it depended on the client as well, um, a route through, I mean Nash could, could clad his plans in any kind of skin, and the castle was one skin that he used. And he wasn't being cynical about it. He was saying, I, I like a nice open form of plan without a formal enfilade of rooms and one room leads to another. But look at the surroundings. Shall I make it a castle? Shall I make it um, an Italianate villa? Shall I make it a, a, a Gothic abbey? Um, they, they were playing. And they enjoyed and their clients enjoyed it. And, and I guess the clients, you, you're talking about many families or family firms, whereas today if we look at signature buildings, it's, it's you know, how capitalism is accumulated yeah, in different ways and it's signature tower blocks in in, world, yeah. in global cities, so yeah. they're the new castles, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, I, well, and one can overdo that as a sort of symptom of 
aspiration as an outward um, manifestation of material aspiration. Um, but if you go to the suburbs of Newcastle, you will see all the Gothic houses, little terminate houses in it. That was the beauty of the picturesque story. Thank you very much, Rizmi. Thank you. Um, we, we'd better leave it there, but please do take the opportunity to um, to, to speak to Claire further over, over drinks. Um, and I, I think I mean, we could easily spend an hour discussing just just your just your paper. Um, we're going to move on um, to uh, Carl Hennigan, um, who uh, will be talking to the title "Why All Trials." Um, Carl is Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine in the university and um, directs the Evidence-Based Healthcare Programme and is also a GP. So thank you, Carl. You're welcome. Did you I'm all right. Hi, right. everybody. I'm, I'm going to talk to you a bit about some of my work and what's been going on in my life for the last five years, the bane of my life. But, Evidence, if you think about it, evidence-based medicine is trying to establish the facts that truth is based on. And that's my job in healthcare. And what I'm going to talk to you about a, is, is a real problem in the truth, in particular how we develop and present evidence to you in medicines. Um, so um, I don't know if you can see this picture okay, but uh, some of you might recognize what's wrong with these children. Uh, this is thalidomide actually, a real big important issue in the 1950s, and brought about a lot of issues around regulation in medicines, because up to that point, if you had a medicine, you just made it, looked look good in a laboratory, and you let it go out there. And you waited for spontaneous reports of how good it was and what it did, and with thalidomide you got spontaneous reports back saying, oh, it improves nausea. And then people said, well, let's use it in nausea, let's use it in pregnancy. And then what happened is, and also disaster, because there were no regulations, no clinical trials. And this lady is a very important lady called Frances Kelsey, and she's receiving the gold medal there from JFK in America, because she was the start of drug regulation, trying to establish the truth. And interestingly, if you were in America at the time, you could only use thalidomide in the context of a clinical trial. That meant, if you were having a baby in the UK, you were 100 times more likely to have a baby with thalidomide than in the US, despite the fact they have six times as many of their population. So they've got 300 million, we've got about 50 million at the time. So by establishing clinical trials, and particularly randomized trials, it was a name to get to the truth about medications and what they mean. So I want to move forward to a particular treatment that I've been working on. And this is often a question I get, and these are my two girls, just to let you know I am a human being. I'm not just a researcher, but I get a qu questions, and this is going back to 2009. Should I give Tamiflu to my children if they have a fever? And I don't know if you all remember around 2009, there was a big panic around Mexican flu, swine flu. There were phone lines. You, if you had a fever, you had to ring up a phone line. You may get a treatment, and some of you may have received an antiviral treatment in the past few years. Um, but when I get this ask this question, one of the things about truth is that I see a lot, is we get lots of opinions. The standard answer I give is I don't know. My job is then to look at some evidence and say what does the evidence say and what does that mean to establish the truth. 
And this is all the international news, just to let you know, at the time, we ended up saying don't give Tamizlur Relenza to under 12 one researchers. That was my advice at the time, and that's 2009. Um, but I want to talk to you about a little bit about a little bit about the story and where I am now and what the problems are. Now, why do we get so worried about flu? Why do we get these messages that are presented to us to saying this is a really bad disease, it's really bad for you? And this is going back to uh, bird flu. So remember just before bird flu, and this is Donald Rumsfeld who made a lot of money on bird flu. 2005, we're all going to die from bird flu, or it potentially may kill us. And the UN report brought a report out to say how many predicted deaths would bird flu cause? 2005. And you could do that in the world or in the UK. So let's just think, how many deaths do you think were going to happen from, this is 2005, they said here's the predicted death. Uh, how many do you think would happen in the UK? Predicted deaths were going to happen. Did they predict? 10, 20, couple of hundred? A million. Okay. So they predicted there'd be 150 million deaths worldwide and there'd be 700,000 deaths in the UK alone. That was when we decided to order 14.6 million doses of Tamiflu. That's the first point when we spent 500 million pounds. Up to that point, there'd been 90 deaths so far from bird flu. And the model said there's going to be 700 deaths. Subsequent to that, there has been no deaths from bird flu yet in the UK. But we ordered around about £500 million worth of this drug around that time. Um, this is then moving forward. This is the chap hands Rosling. You'll like this then, is to say, how does information get projected to you? And how does it make you think? And this is uh, the news to death ratio. Okay. So, in the first 13 days, 24th of April, when the swine flu broke, some of you may remember where you are, like when JFK died, uh, but in the first 13 days, let's look at the number of deaths, and this was all over the world, of swine flu. There were 31 deaths. In the same 13 days, for TB, there were 63,066 deaths at the same time frame. You can then look at the number of news articles. There were 254,442 news articles for swine flu. There were 6,501 for tuberculosis. Meaning that you have to have 8,176 news articles for one death on flu. And if you read one article on TB, 10 people have died. So you see there's a distortion in how we feel. So nobody I ever got, because they're really worried about TB. Anybody worried about TB? The coming with influenza, you're really worried. People are really worried about influenza. We have vaccination campaigns, we have many campaigns, but there are still more deaths from TB in this country. So the distortion of the medical world and how you get information is really interesting. But one of the things is when we did this, we published a whole bit of research in 2009 looking at saying this is what we do. We do look for all the evidence for drugs. Not just one trial, we try and find what's called a systematic review is a way of doing research where you ask a particular question and try and find all the evidence around that question with a certain clinical trial. And Oxford is a world leader in systematic reviews because the Cochrane Library was established here 21 years ago 
was the first ever entity to decide to do systematic reviews about healthcare interventions. But one of the things we do when we do that is we want to find all the evidence. And I'm going to talk to you about one of the things is you want to find all the clinical trials that have been done. And these are papers we wrote at the time ago, and we had major problems about finding that data. And I'm going to talk to you about work we do, and this is a group of people, including Tom Jefferson in Italy, Mark Jones in Australia, Peter Doshi in America, Chris Del Mars in Australia, Rokuro Hammers in Japan, and me there. There's a whole group of us around the world who've been trying to find the evidence for Tamiflu and another drug called Relenza, which are two type of drugs. The story is, we started the first ever review, came out in 1999, and each year there's been updates, and this is the one that's coming in a few weeks' time, but each time. But one of the things that happened in 2009, the health people here, the NHR, funded us and said we want an adult and a children's review. And what happens is, when you do a review and post it, people can add comments. And if people add comments, this chap, Hayashi, was a Japanese doctor, Japanese use about half of the world's supply of Tamiflu because they're really worried about influenza, sends in a reply and what happens in the Cochrane and the reviews, you've got to respond within six months. And he said, though, look, there are a whole host of things that I'm not happy with, um, including these, and I'll come back to them, but what had happened is, in, in two, he said in 2003, there's a particular review that was published by a chap called Lauren Kaiser and all these people and it concluded that Tamiflu and these drugs reduce your risk of pneumonia. Very important outcome. And subsequent to that, some of our team had confirmed that and said, oh, the result's really big, actually. It's about a 66% reduction in pneumonia. Really important. You would want a treatment that does that. Because that two-thirds reduction, pneumonia is an important condition that can hospitalise you and in the elderly can lead to death. However, this chap, this is Hayashi, and this is because he was filmed for one of our programmes that's gone on in Swiss TV. He said that actually what you've done is you've made a massive mistake. You took the results that were in the Kaiser review and taken them and just use them in your own systematic review as though they were published data. However, you cannot find some of these publications. And in there, only two of them have ever been published. Eight have never been published. And some of them were just abstracts in conference proceedings, and you shouldn't have done that. And it made us all stand back and go, actually, he's right, we have made a big mistake. And up to that point, people have been taking other publications and going, yeah, these are truth. We use what you've published to inform what we publish. And he also said the complication rates in the unpublished ones are much higher than the ones that are in the published ones. So we went to the two authors of the review and asked them, where's the data in the publications? And if you read this, this is what one of the authors says, I have searched but cannot find the original files related to the 2003 publication. Before and again after my two years at WHO in Geneva, I was obliged to move offices at the university several times and downsize. The files appear to have been discarded. My co-author, now professor at the University of Geneva, is copied in and he may have the sources. The questions posed to inquire are not clear to me, but if original data are published, study reports are required, 
they will likely need to come from Roche, the manufacturer. So we asked one of the authors of the abstracts, and here's one of the abstracts. That's all that was ever published. That's the biggest study ever done, and it was published. And we actually had Channel 4 News involved now, because they were going, this is really odd. And he said, his name's on, on the abstract, but he said, as far as he could remember, the pipe trap was the only large study of L cell telemedia ever participated in. He didn't actually participate in this study. And he doesn't remember presenting at the meeting in 2000. And Roach going, it's not infrequent that you may have somebody who offers, but, may, but they don't actually present it at a conference. It depends upon their availability. Bit odd, isn't it? Bit, so you get, and then it gets worse. So here's one of the published papers that we found. And this is in one of the big journals, The Lancet. And this chap now says, he did not even recall seeing the primary data yet. His name's the first author. He said that the analysis had been conducted by Roche, the manufacturer, and he analysed the summary data. Roche admitted that medical writers were used to draft the publications, and he argued that before 2003, this was okay, it was standard practice. So before 2003, this is the way people were behaving about writing up studies. And so we got this really concern, and this is what we look, the FDA call it. It's, sort of, it's like the iceberg effect. What happens is above the waterline, there's only a very small bit of what's available from studies and evidence. And it tends to be journals, which are very small publications, and conference proceedings and posters. But yet be below the waterline is all these study reports, files and data that exist. And it's volumes of documents. And we decided to go for a new approach saying, Above the waterline, we don't believe it, it's not true, because we can't even access it, and people don't, who said they've done this work, won't put their name to it. So we said we're going to go after all this. And that was in 2009. And we got some of the data from the European Medicines Agency. Not all of it, but a bit. And this was one of our first findings that really worried us. Remember the paper that showed you the chap had published, but not offered? In the two most cited published trials, they either did not mention serious adverse events or stated that there were no drug-related adverse events, serious adverse events. Serious adverse events are the ones you worry about. They're like death. Yeah. Finding repeated by bodies such as the UK NHS, no serious adverse events were noted in the major trials and no significant changes were noted in the laboratory parameters. Yet when, when we looked at these study reports, immediately we said, there are 10 serious adverse events. Nine participants in the two trials. One of them had two. Now that's really worrying, isn't it, when you think you're trying to establish the truth and the facts, that actually the very medications that we use are based only on a little bit above the waterline, and that what's below the waterline could differ significantly. And I'm just going to finish now, because what I'm going to show is that what's happening is persistent-wise, we really persisted, and last year, in January last year, in fact, was a very important book that came out, was Ben Goldacre's book, I don't know if anybody's read it, read it called Bad Pharma. It's a good read. And in there, about 30 pages, is about Tamiflu and what we did. And that led to an initiative called All Trials. And all trials are trying to say all studies should be registered and published in full. 
Now, in terms of registration, I'm involved in clinical trials. I put them on a clinical registry, and one of them, there are a number around the world, so that you can actually say I started, and, and I'm supposed to, when it's finished, publish my results within one year. Yet, half of all trials are never registered at all. So it's a major problem. However, because of the persistence of people like Channel 4, people like the BMJ, this is February 2013, the first company, GSK, announced that they were going to release the study documents to us in full. And they did that. They started delivering us files which are about 30,000 pages. Later that year, in April 2013, Roche did the same agreement to release all the data. Now we have, and we've analysed it, and we've worked out from review now, around about 180,000 pages of study reports that go into the iceberg under the water. Yet above the water was only ever two clinical trials, about 10 pages. And this has been a major change in the way we're thinking now about healthcare to try and have all the evidence to establish the truth. And one of the major initiatives has been this All Trials campaign, which now has 65,000 people signed up to it, who've signed the petition, and 440 organisations who are saying it would be a good idea if all the evidence was available and published in full to establish the truth. Thank you very much. Um, thanks very much, Carl. I mean, um, terrifically um, kind of uh, full and rich presentation and loads of questions, I'm sure, that will follow on, on from that. Um, we, we've probably got time for a couple, but then we can we, we take it into the common room and we'll have, have drinks downstairs. Anybody um, like to kick off with anything they'd like to ask Carl? I'd just quite like to know what you think of NICE's latest effort around statins. So NICE's latest efforts is to say we should all go down to 10%, shouldn't we? Yeah, and, well, they basically like to put it in the water, I think. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you can make surmises and go, look, actually, we can do everything, but that sort of should come back and redo the clinical trial, because well, exactly. it's uncertain. Exactly. exactly. So, because of all those things that you've just identified around publication bias, the fact that, that, that a lot of stuff just doesn't rise above the waterline, and all of this that's come out is based on stuff that, well, it, it, it lacks the stuff that it should have in it. And when you're talking about prescribing drugs to millions of people, even if the drugs themselves aren't very expensive, it's significant implications. So one of the ways to think, and I was having this discussion this lunchtime with somebody, is to say, whatever your risk of an event, the harm stays the same. Yes. However, the benefit is related to your underlying risk. So. If you've got a very high risk of cardiovascular disease, say 50%, then you give yourself a drug that halves that risk, it goes down from 50 to 25, you get lots of benefit, which outweighs the harm. If your risk is 10% and you only halve that risk, you come down to 5%. So your absolute risk benefit has got much smaller. Same relative, but your absolute benefit's getting smaller and smaller. But your harms have stayed the same. And at some point, there's a tipping point between any drug. Now, because healthcare is the fastest, biggest growing business in the world, 
you know, it's one of probably the only two businesses you want to be in right now, software's probably the other one, is there's a real pressure to say, we'd really quite like to sell drugs to everybody, and we'd like to put you all on drugs. We have spent around about seven, eight hundred million pounds on this treatment, and right now the Public Accounts Committee is deciding, waiting for our next review to decide whether we should spend a further 50 million pounds on the treatment or not. But there's a real important issue about if you're at low risk, actually it's all about prevention, it's about losing weight, exercise, public health strategies, and medicalization has real risks. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It struck me that um, obviously it's far less life and death <laughs> matter, but for, for humanities researchers or social science researchers, I mean you have exactly the same under the waterline mm -hmm. um, data behind everything that, that's produced. And, and the question of authority is so important because you know, if, if somebody who's a, who's a well-known professor says it's true and puts it into print, then the trust that comes in about the, 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 the sources and the kind of data so, that has kind of come, yeah. uh, has, has sort of fed into that. Yeah, and, and you do get historians who, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, you're trusting that they've looked at everything that they say that they're looking at. So we have in our hierarchy yeah. of evidence at the yes. very bottom is the key opinion leader <laughs> The old fart, the expert opinion, yeah. yes. because it's really interesting the way, and maybe this is something about truth, is when you get asked a question, or we all like to provide an answer. This is what you should do. But actually, if you go back and say, hmm, you can make yourself quite unpopular if you do that. Have we got any evidence for that statement? Where did it come from? And many areas now we start to unravel. I don't know if you saw a few days ago, um, the first ever randomized trials in education have come about. Hmm. They're going to do two school-based randomised trials. Because they often see these things, don't they? We're going to do phonics, we're going to do this, should we do this? And it's like, it's like opinion city. And actually mm. stepping back and going, hmm, I wonder what the evidence for that. Yeah. But actually we like our opinions and to be opinionated. But in healthcare decisions and medicalisation, it's quite dangerous. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks a lot, um, and thank you all for coming and for participating and um, we'll move on now to the common room and those of you who've, who've booked in for dinner um, that will commence about 6.30 so we've got about 20, 20 minutes downstairs for drinks okay thank you to all our speakers yeah. thank you very much yeah great